Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Today we have on Judge Graham. Judge is a rock star for sure. Uh, he's a, a co, or I guess uh, one of my colleagues in the Inc. 5000. He's also won multiple Best Places to Work awards. The guy is crushing it. He's got two books out that we can talk about, Scale with Speed, and one coming up, Mastering Recurring Revenue. Uh, Judge has been featured in places like Adweek, AdAge, Forbes, Bloomberg, CNBC. I mean, the list goes on and got on. The guy has sold uh, companies for millions of dollars. He is the host of the top-rated Scale and Exit podcast. Uh, just really a go-to authority when it comes to business and capitalizing on opportunities. Excited to have you on the show, Judge. Thanks, man. Excited to be here, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to talk about your journey and some of the things that you're doing. I love the work that you're doing, especially, you know, you and I have obviously chatted and Scale with Speed is is a, a truly valuable resource for people, just the principles and insights in there. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background about what some of this means? So, I mean, we know that you've done a lot, right? Inc. 5000, sold companies. Just give us a little Reader's Digest version of what that journey's been. Uh, great. The, the journey's been all about failure and success. You know, I, I talk a lot about the importance of failure, Kyle, right? So you, if you're not prepared to fail and you're not failing along that journey, you're never going to be successful. You know, you look at people like Michael Jordan, you know, the, he's missed more shots than he's made. So for me, my journey started with failing. So my first business um, grew it, um, pretty large business, 30, 40 employees, and I didn't have recurring revenue and it was project based and my expenses got out of line. I started hiring more people. I got bigger space. I took lines of credit and I couldn't keep the sales um, higher than the expenses. And I failed that business. And at that point, I had a I had a, a moment, right? I could either dig deep and continue to move forward or I could you know, go in the corner and kind of give up. And, you know, that wasn't my outcome. I, I took those failures and I learned from them. And then I went on to grow several um, more successful businesses and exited those businesses for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm here today using the principles that I failed um, and in the success to help make entrepreneurs and business owners um, better and more importantly, how they get there faster. So how do you leapfrog and how do you, you know, take some of the things that um, I was not successful in and, and help them, you know, navigate through those waters. That's awesome. And, and you and I share a very similar sentiment around failure and the importance of failure. What's an early failure that you, rem- that you remember? And it's, it's maybe one of those kind of benchmark moments where uh, you learned a lot and you were able to figure out how to work through failure. I, I think it was within that first business and, and you know, to, to get detailed on it would be, you know, t- taking a personal line of credit and it, at the time, you know, feeling in my gut that, man, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. And then using that money to, to help build out, you know, a space and, um, you know, cover other things that we were growing the company for. And then realizing um, we kept growing and growing that we couldn't keep up with that. And then having to literally shut that business down and declare personal bankruptcy and knowing in that moment, I was just recently married. Uh, I had mortgage, car payments. I had a uh, you know baby on the way. That moment, you know, I'll never forget. I'll never forget what it felt like failing and understanding why I failed, and that taking that lesson and knowing that I would never do that again. Well, so that's not a small thing. I mean, a lot of times when we talk about failure in the podcast, people you know talk about missteps, but you're talking about one of the most traumatic financial experiences that somebody can go through. I mean, literally filing personal bankruptcy. And so when you say that that was an emotional experience, uh, that had to be devastating. Oh, dude, it, it was. It, it was. I mean, and, and you talk about you know people 
you know, say all the time, you know, my wife is my, you know, my ride or die or, you know, whatever people say, like, you, you know how deep and how great of a partner you have when you realize living through that and, and you know, how do you rally together and, and come out the other end stronger? But yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, literally sitting there, uh, freshly married, baby on the way, uh, car payments, mortgage and having nothing, right? I mean, dead broke and then still digging deep enough to figure out and, and go start something else, right? So that took relentless focus, relentless belief in myself, relentless support from my wife and family, um, and crazy amount of hard hours and work in order to get to where I uh, ultimately ended up. Okay. So if you reach this point of filing personal bankruptcy, there had to be a whole bunch leading up to it. So, so you can kind of see the writing on the wall. It's, it's, you know, uh, you can see that these things are about to happen, but at some point there's a moment where you realize, holy crap, this is really going to happen. Like, this is my only option. This is really going to happen. What was that moment when you realized this is reality? I'm actually going to have to go through with this. I think the reality was when I started to finally realize, you know, we can't pay our staff. You know, a lot of business owners will, will sit up at night and, you know, you're, you're chasing the mailman or you're, you know, how am I going to make payroll? I just got to make one more sale this month. You know, that's the shit nobody likes to talk about, the behind the scenes, what real entrepreneurs live through. And I think it was that moment where I experienced, you know, a couple months of feeling that way. And then that third month literally going, man, we are two or three months behind on rent. We're not going to make payroll. We haven't you know, been able to pay ourselves in months. And we have all these people calling and collecting. And it, this thing is, this is it. It's over. You know, that, that moment I'll never forget. Yeah, man. Well, and it's such a tricky place to be. I mean, uh, Personally, I resonate with this because I, I've been in all of those places that you're talking about in terms of making payroll, in terms of you know staying up at night worrying about uh, how's the company going to survive another month or two months. I, I, you know, I've been in those places, and I think there's this weird thing about entrepreneurs. I don't. It's not weird, but it's this constant optimism of you yeah. know, to your point of hey, it's just one more sale. Like uh, you know, things are crappy right now, like as bad as they can get, but it's just one more sale. So if I can just do this, and it, and sometimes that is actually digging the person into a worse situation. So what's your advice to somebody who is that optimist, and you, you're trying to maintain that optimism of I can really do something, and oh, we can get that next sale with reality of here's what the numbers say. How do you find that balance? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a tough balance, right? And, and I had to live through that experience to, and, and make it through the other side to, to appreciate it. Right. So in the moment, counseling somebody through that is, is tough. And, and I'm actually coaching a couple of people now um, that aren't in that dire of a situation. They're actually just to increase margins and run a more effective business. And I have the pressure of, having to make so much in sales per month. But my advice would be, you know, uh, from a fiduciary duty, I mean, the thing that, that I learned from that was it's better to affect some of the team versus the whole team. And what I mean by that is if you're cognizant of it, you're managing your income, you're managing your business, and you're making incremental hard decisions along the way. So if we would have caught this six months in advance and realized, man, we're having to sell so much every month to keep up with this nut. You know what? We need to reduce some expenses. How do we break our lease? How do we, you know, we have 30 people. I think we can get by with 15 or 20. And you start making those incremental decisions. I would have never ended up with that outcome of that first one. So my advice is be optimistic, be positive, but have real self-reflection and really look at the numbers. And as you start to see that pain, that's your choice to live with that pain, right? Start making incremental changes and realize as tough as it is to lose people, you know, you're still going to be benefiting the people that are there. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And, you know, it's something that I've talked to clients about as well is this willingness to make the tough choices today. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of it. It's, it's kind of like as human beings, we have this, you know, whether it's, um, you know, you contract a, 
a disease or you're, 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 you're unhealthy and you're overweight or the reality in a business, you just keep procrastinating it. You keep telling yourself it's going to get better. It's not real. And you're not willing to start making sacrifice and change. And all of a sudden it just gets to a point and it's, it's too late, you know? And I think this, this, a lesson that we're talking about applies to everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. So starting, you know, having those tough conversations, make those tough changes, but when you do it, you'll feel better. Right. I mean, I just got off the phone literally before this, this podcast and um, I'm helping a guy right now and he, you know, his monthly expenses are probably like, I don't know, 650,000 a month and for his business. And I said, listen, you know, I'm looking at everything. We need to cut 50 grand and it's going to be easy. You're not even going to feel it. But what you are going to feel is that incremental margin of 50,000 that you can now use to either put into operating or just to, to have. And, you know, he just did it and he called me because, man, judge, it was so hard to do that. But man, I have so much relief. I feel so much better. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I love this conversation because it is this matter of making these tough choices, but recognizing that the outcome of making that choice is far better than the misery of living within that stress and anxiety and ultimately the misery of having that tough choice made for you. Totally. Yep. hundred percent. All right. So you have this devastating experience of, uh, filing personal bankruptcy. How long was the recovery period? And I don't mean financially recovery. I mean like the emotional recovery of, holy crap, I just filed personal bankruptcy. My, you know, my credit's going to be restricted and limited. Uh, there's probably a blow Still to my self esteem. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, all those things are happening. So how, how long was the emotional recovery period that, that said, you know what, screw it. I made a mistake. You know, I failed. I had to file personal bankruptcy but I can still go out and make something happen. How long was that period? I think because of the dire situation I was in, and, and I think it was almost good how dire it was because it didn't allow me to have a lot of, you know, moments of, of woe is me. You know, mm. I, I literally had a couple of days to say, you know what, I'm either going to do this or not. And then once I made that decision, I got my wife comfortable with it. My family was involved from a support uh, perspective. And then at that point, Cal, I just, I had a relentless focus and I went to work. I mean, I literally um, went to work and, you know, would get up at 3.30 in the morning and then work until 9, 9 or 10 p.m. and come home, take a nap and do it again. And I did that straight for two years. And, you know, that's not a healthy thing to do. And a lot of people will say, well, couldn't you have worked smarter? I couldn't. I mean, I was literally working, delivering the work, producing it, selling it. You know, there was there was there was no money for any, for me to pay anybody else. So I was, I was acting in three different functions. Yeah, well, that's a great insight that th just the idea that you didn't really have a choice coming out of it. You were in this place where. Yeah, so the tough decision was made, but that didn't mean that you were out of a tough situation uh, and, and really seeing that the only way out of it is to just put in the work and grind it out. Yeah, a lot of people are not successful. And I talk about this in one of my books, Scale with Speed. Until you burn the freaking ships, until you really commit, right? You're on the island, the ship is tied, you turn around, you light it with you know gasoline and throw a match and the thing burns down, you're freaking committed. So when I was bankrupt and had no money, my ship was burned. I mean, I was committed. And so a lot of people that say, oh, you know what? I think I want to be an entrepreneur. Oh, I think I'm going to go in business. And they've got this safety. They've got this life raft that they never let go of, whether that's their other job or the commitment that, of, of effort and time or what they need to invest in the business. They never go fully in. They never fully commit. And because until you're fully committed, you're never going to be that successful. I love it. How, do, how does somebody get that though? So if, if they're aspiring, they have some goals, they have some ambitions, how do they get that full commitment? I, you know, in, in everybody's different, right? So I don't, I don't want, you know, people listening to this just to go do something, you know, crazy because everybody's risk tolerance is different. But, you know, what I've counseled people in the past is, man, you know, I really want to do this business, but, you know, I'm, 
I'm here and I actually just coached a guy and I'm super proud of these guys. I'm going to give a shout out to them. It's called uh, Verity Jet. So this, this individual, they sell private jets and him and his partner have now started this company. But about three months ago, they came to me and they had a great job and they just, they said, well, you know what? I think we're going to kind of start this on the side. We're going to do this. And I said, guys, you're never going to do it. I said, it's never going to happen. You're never going to be successful until you literally turn in your job. I mean, I mean, I mean, you resign, you know, turn your resignation papers, put money into building, you know, a website, your positioning, all those things, set aside what money you have for savings, make a date to say, I've got X amount of time to burn through my savings, get alignment with your family that that money is about to get used until you generate revenue. But until you make that commitment, you're never going to start this company. You're never going to be successful with it. And it really resonated with him because, you know, he's been going back and forth for this for, for months, but he's had that security of, well, maybe I just started at night. Maybe I do it on the weekend and not leave my job and let's just see what happens. But what happens is you 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 give 50% to both and neither one of them are successful. So it's it's one of those things you just got to you got to go all in. And until you do that, you're not going to ever be successful. I love one one point you said there uh and I I want to make sure that the listeners get this very clear. One could look at this as how do I find the commitment? But what you're saying is you have to actually do something right up front that demonstrates yeah. the commitment. So it's not yeah. about, oh, I, you know, like I'm going to cut off everything so that I can then find commitment. You're saying, look, by cutting stuff off, you're already demonstrating the commitment. And now you have a foundation of commitment you can build on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, yeah, commitment to me, it has to be real, right? So commitment is I have my savings of X amount. And I've put it in now and I went out and created an LLC. I spent money on that. I transferred my savings to an LLC and and I am 100% going to use that money until I start making money, right? I signed a lease that's a three-year lease because I needed space that I can't get out of. I mean, those are commitments, right? If you want to work out and go to the gym, go sign a two-year lease or a two-year gym membership that you can't break. Now you at least have made a commitment. Now you've got to decide, do I want to you know, go or not? And, and that money's gone, but you, at least you've started a commitment to something. Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, that's exactly the point, right? Is that it starts with a commitment and then you build on that commitment by taking further action. Uh, but until you actually take some sort of action, there's nothing that's going to build that commitment. There's, there's no thinking that you can do. There's no uh, brainstorming you can do. There's no hyping up that you can do that actually builds commitment until you take the actual action. And one of those actions can be cutting off alternatives uh, so that you really are invested. You're demonstrating the commitment and now you have a foundation to build on. I love it. Yeah. And the other thing too, and I'm going to say, and this may sound haphazardly, but I don't believe that it is, is the more you think about something the more likely that you wring your hands and you don't do it, right? So here's a great example, and you're familiar with this. You've written um, um, books as well. So, you know, a year ago, I had never written a book. I'm not even a good writer, right? <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I want to write a book. And so at that moment, I committed. I didn't research it. I didn't. I just said, I've got to write a book. And so I immediately went out. I found a publisher right? I I convinced this publisher. I just wrote something. I then signed a contract with the publisher and then went out and found an agent. And I did all this within 48 hours. And guess what? I was committed now, right? I was going to write a book. (laughs) Like I I invested time. I built relationships. I put some money into it. I put some resource into it. And by me taking that action and that urgency and just the act of starting is the reason I finished a book. So many people will say, I want to write a book. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then they start thinking about everything. Well, that's going to be hard. And they research it. And, you know, people don't make any money when they write books or no, nobody, you know, how am I going to sell it? And this is going to be hard. And they just line up the excuses and they never do it, you know? And so you've got to commit to the action of just starting. Listen, if you want to run a marathon, 
You don't need anything but the shorts you have on and the tennis shoes in your closet. Just start running. Just go 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 on the first jog and then start researching what you need to do for a marathon. But it starts with lacing up and the act of just running. Absolutely. It reminds me, I, I have actually written this, this chart out for entrepreneurs and executives that I've, I've worked with. And it's speaking to exactly what you're saying, but it's as the amount of time and energy invested in thinking and analyzing a situation goes up, the likelihood of taking action goes down. And it's yeah. that exact thing. I mean, there, there's this just this fine balance, this fine line of wanting to be prepared and, and thinking and analyzing so that you kind of take the right step with taking the step. And I think people, you always have to overemphasize taking the step over, you know, and analyzing and preparing and all those other things. Now, it's not to say that those things don't matter at some level, but if you overemphasize the analysis, you'll never take the action. So you have to overemphasize taking the, the action versus analyzing it and thinking about it. Yeah. And most things that we're doing are brain surgery, meaning, you know, you don't have to have that skilled of a craft, you can course correct. So if you start a book and your first chapter sucks, you can fix it, right? If if this is the first time you know somebody wants to do a podcast, just go do it, right? You're going to learn along the way. Nobody's going to even notice, and you're going to get better. But if you think and you you pontificate and you wring your hands and do I have the right equipment and how am I going to sound and what am I going to say? Like you never just go versus the other individual who just started is going to be light years ahead of you just by doing. And so I think part of the audience here needs to, 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 to grasp is, listen, it's okay to fail, right? You're going to learn from those failures and more than likely, they're not going to be devastating failures. They're going to make you better, but it, you're never going to be able to fail to win if you don't start. Yeah. Well, and what you just said too about how big a deal failure really is, is I think that there's this fear of what failure is going to be like is far worse than the reality is. We always think that, you know, I don't know what it is. We think that the, the absolute worst is going to happen and that everything's going to be gone and that, you know, there's just no recovery. That's what we envision in our mind when we think about failure. And yet, I've never come across somebody who couldn't walk away or couldn't, I shouldn't say it that way, but who couldn't recover from some failure that, but the fear was so big and yet the failure itself was never as big as the fear. Well, people have empathy, right? The majority of people have empathy. And I talk a lot about this. Like, you know, if we all had the um, ability that children have like seven to 10 years old, and I use this example so my son, at seven years old, got up in a talent show in front of 500 plus people, kids and parents, by himself, sung one of Bruno Mars' songs and danced the whole thing. Like most adults would never do that, right? Because they're so petrified and scared of how am I going to sound? What are people going to think? And I can't dance. I can't do that. But kids... They have this ability just to not care. They go out and they fail. And as my son missed a lyric, it was no problem because he adjusted. And guess what? The audience had empathy and they loved it even more. Yeah. So people have to realize, you know, no one's going to care. Like, just do it. Like, you're missing out in life. The only thing we can't buy more of or make more of is time. And the longer you procrastinate and, and are unwilling to take a chance to fail, you're going to look back at life and you're going to miss out on so many great things. I love it. That's a, uh, I mean, it's a great example and story and it helps separate the mindset of somebody who will get out and do it versus the person who just worries about what other people are going to think, worries about what failure is going to be like, all of those things. One of the things that you were talking about earlier that I want to get back to is this idea of you know, something that's in your head and making it tangible. And Mm -hmm. one of the first things that I ask clients, uh, and I'm curious to hear your approach on this as well. One of the first things that I ask clients when they're telling me about an idea, they're telling me about something that they've aspired to, but has never become is I always ask, 
What have you done to put it out into the world? So I know it's in your head, you're telling me about it, but tell me one thing you've done to put it out into the world. And honestly, the only thing I'm looking for at that like initial stage is have you even written it down? Have you even taken that step? Mm. Uh, because at some level, you just have to get it out there. It can't just yeah. in your head. You have to get it out there. So what's that first step look like for you to get a good idea out into the world? It, it's it's just that. It's I mean, it's for me personally – um, I'm a very visual learner and I'm, and I'm a very visual person. So I have to start sketching it, right? So if, if it's, whether it's what I want out of my life, it's my end game, it's a new business idea. I immediately grab, you know, something to start sketching so I can start compartmentalizing and seeing what it could be, right? So that's, that's my personal idea process. But, you know, I completely agree with you. If someone just has an idea it means nothing, right? All of a sudden, when you put it on paper, it turns into, you know, potentially how much work you put into it from an idea to potentially a strategy or a plan, right? And then it becomes a little bit more tangible because now you can assign people to it, time, money, effort, dates, and then you can actually start doing it and put in action and then start seeing. So, I mean, to me, that's kind of my, my process, yeah. Well, and you, you just said something that was really key and it's it, all the time I have people want to tell me how much their idea is worth. And I always <laughs> correct them, right? I always correct them. Your idea is not worth anything. Like there's not an idea out there that's worth anything until it actually becomes something tangible, until it becomes some form. The idea is not worth anything. Everybody has ideas, but the actual value comes into being able to make it tangible. And then, like you said, you can then assign some value to the work, to the product, to the service, to those other components. But the idea is not worth anything. Mm -mm. Yeah, no. And, and, and you need to get it out there fast, too. I think entrepreneurs fail. Uh, I met with one the other day and, you know, they want to roll out a, a certain, you know, technology. And, you know, he spent hours on all the feature sets and the use cases and the business cases. And, and I was like, listen, dude, let's cut this down to 2% of what you've told me. Let's get it out and market and then actually have your users dictate the other 98% that you think that they want, right? Because you're never going to get this product. The freaking, the product's never going to, is never going to ship. Like you're yeah. never going to build it, you know? So part of it is, you know, that philosophy of, Take it from idea to reality fast. How quickly can you get it in the market? Because now you've put time, money, effort, and energy, and then all of a sudden it's real and you have to react to it. When it becomes an idea and it's just on paper, it never it's never real and it never has urgency. Yeah. Well, I, and one thing I love about what you are, you know, the advice that you're giving this entrepreneur about doing the 2% and letting the people tell you about the other 98% that I think is one of the biggest missing skills of an entrepreneur. And I think it's kind of the catch 22 of being an entrepreneur yeah. is the ability to actually listen. Entrepreneurs are so true. Entrepreneurs are so action driven. And so have, have such dominant personalities in general that they just want to go out and do their thing and mm -hmm. they overlook the ability and the importance of actually listening. And so what you're really getting at is look, don't assume, you know, a hundred percent of the game Take the 2% that you really know, get it out there, and then listen for the other 98%. Yeah, completely. How can entrepreneurs get better at that? How can we get better at listening to the market, listening to customers, listening to you know, what's really happening in our business? Yeah, it, it took me um, failing and <laughs> not doing that to, uh, to, to understand it. And then, you know, once I got that, it was it was so key, right? I mean, I talk to businesses uh, a lot right now, Kyle. And, and what I do is most businesses I find are talking to themselves. And what I mean is you get a bunch of executives in a room and everybody is just pontificating on shit that they believe the customer is going to like and what they think and this and that. And they've lost sight of the customer. Right. They haven't gone out and actually talked to the customer. They haven't done, you know, sample things. They haven't, you know, tried to to, to bring them in to do focus groups. They haven't, um, you know, set up a test market. They haven't done the things about the customer because they get so caught up in, in, in their own little world. 
you know, and even how they present things. Like I'm doing a whiteboard Wednesday about being direct. Most companies just talk shit to themselves. They, they say big, stupid words like that don't mean anything for the customer. Like we create um, incredible user experiences to change the world. What the hell does that mean? Like, it doesn't, yeah. like, if a customer goes there and they're looking to buy whatever you're selling and they read that, that there's a disconnect, right? If you're a you know, cell phone company and that's your statement, it should be we sell you know, great smartphones at a, at a good value or whatever. I'm making it up. People lose sight of the customer. They lose sight of how to talk to the customer, what the customer wants, why the customer wants it, what they're willing to pay, what they're not willing to pay. Um, how they're being serviced. I mean, all those things, um, I think entrepreneurs at some point in their journey start to lose sight of. Yeah. I, you know, I've experienced that with corporate strategy. So a lot of times, you know, we'll go through a, a big strategy session with executives. And to your point, it's this insular group that's sitting in a room and going through all these ideas and concepts. And so we spend, you know, three, four or five days running through all these different uh, options and opportunities and come that last day, you know, we have this fully vetted strategy and then we start talking about, okay, how are we going to roll this out to the organization and communicate it? And these executives without fail want to take something that they spent five full days exploring and defining and creating and try to deliver it to their people with just broad stroke ideas like, right. well, we're going to be more efficient, right? We're going to be more efficient or we're going to be more effective. And they expect that one word to communicate what they spent five days defining. Right. No, totally. Yeah. And, uh, and you've got you've to get to the brass tacks of it. You've got to really tell your people, no, this is what it means to be efficient in our business. Mm-hmm or effective yep. or whatever, you know, this is what quality means, whatever your strategy is, you've got to be able to communicate it in specifics. Completely. Well, so scale with speed, your book, tell me what, what's, what are the two pieces of information in the book that you think are business changing for people? Um, so the two things in there, and I'll start with the first is you need to spend 75% of your day on revenue generating activities. And, um, I'm wearing a hat right now. If this was, you know, video, you could see it. It says W I M dollar sign. And what that is, is where is my money? And what I mean by that is everybody in your organization should be revenue generating focused. And if you're not spending 75% of your day on those activities, you're, you know, you're vulnerable not to grow or you're vulnerable to go out of business because you start doing stupid ass meetings about stuff that doesn't generate revenue or doesn't help the customer. Right. and, And so that advice in my book is not only that you need to do it, but how do you do it? How do you get your whole organization aligned and in rhythm from the CEO to the intern, from an annual objective to quarterly objectives, to monthly, to weekly, to daily, and it all rolls up and is aligned. And it's all about 75% of your time plus on revenue generating activities. And I show you how to do that through tools and platforms. And, you know, what I found is, you know, companies, especially small companies, right? If you're not doing that, you will fail. Once you get to, you know, call it 30, 40, 50 million plus, you know, you have a little bit more stability. But these companies that are startups to 25 million in revenue, this needs to be your core. I mean, you need to have a growth culture and you need to be focused on revenue. So that's that's a core concept in this book. Um, The other core concept in this book is is obviously speed, right, is how to create urgency, how to have an environment to where you're moving fast, how to empower your people so they're not wringing their hands, right? Kyle, you know, in, in organizations, if, you know, you have you know something that needs to get done and you're delegating it, but you have people in your organization that are scared to make decisions, you know, things could go weeks, could pass, and then all of a sudden you've missed a, a deadline or a deliverable because people are scared to make a decision. So, you know, I talk to people about how you get your whole organization to move fast. Um, so those would be the two main keys if I had to pick two. 
I love it. And I love the, the ultra focus on revenue generation. Uh, you know, it is the classic, oh, I filled my pipeline and then I forget about my pipeline because I'm trying to deliver work. And now right. all of a sudden I'm in a place where I realize I don't even have a pipeline anymore. And now I'm screwed because it's going to take me six months, not, not you know, nine months to rebuild my pipeline. Yes. Um, but by centering your focus always on what are the revenue generating a- activities, then you get away from that missing the pipeline kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's even people that may not like you would think touch revenue, but let's say it's, it's customer uh, service. Right. So what are those six to eight things? What are the priorities they're working on to ensure that they're keeping customers because that's a revenue generating activity? What are they doing when they're on the phone to capture properly things that we can improve in? That's a revenue generating activity. So I frame up how to do all these things. So literally it can be from the person that answers the phone to the CEO. How do you get your organization aligned and in rhythm and spending at least 75 percent of revenue? I mean, it's, it's key. I mean, it's the difference between growth companies and stagnant companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. The speed one's an interesting one. And, and I think I'm going to take it a little bit different direction, but it's just because this is something that I've been thinking about and it's a piece that I've been working on for Forbes. But one of the problems that I see with speed, and this is specific to kind of the tech front uh, or really just any startup that's focused on uh, innovation so one of the problems is you have this, this startup come into the, the industry based on innovation and they're pushing kind of this innovation frontier and they're doing really well. They're succeeding. They're getting all this seed funding. And then they, they think, okay, we developed this, this product or service that was innovative. Now we need to shift to focusing on how to make that thing really good, how to get it you know more embedded in the market. And what they fail to realize is that their advantage wasn't in the innovation. Their advantage was in getting it to market quickly. Their advantage was actually in speed. 100%. But, but by focusing too much attention on the product now, they actually lose their competitive advantage because it wasn't the product itself that was their competitive advantage. It was getting it to market quickly. And then when they make that shift, that's when all these innovative companies die. I mean, that is the the statistics for innovative companies that die are phenomenal because they all try to make that shift without recognizing that their competitive advantage was not the product or the innovation. It was actually the speed with which they could get it to market. And they need to continue to reinforce that speed. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I think we could do a whole book or case studies on you know, uh, and I'm making this up, so this isn't a, a real stat, but, you know, when Uber was building Uber, I promise you there were another four companies that were an R&D that had something probably similar. The only difference is, is Uber just launched it, right? <laughs> and yeah. then figured yeah. it out of the way. They were, the other companies were too scared to go to market because they felt they needed to build another 15 feature sets, right? Yeah. Or, you know, you could probably say that for Amazon, for Google, for all these players you know, it was, it was, you know, I guarantee part of their success was about speed and timing, right? They didn't overthink things and they launched because they needed first market advantage. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that it is probably the most overlooked strategic advantage, uh, within a market is actual focusing on the speed with which we can get something to market and in the hands of customers. So many organizations that I've worked with overlook that element of how quickly they can actually take an idea and get it to market and how big a factor that is to the success. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wrote the whole book on it. I mean, it, it, I believe right now in business, it is the game changer, right? Because technology has equalized everything. And so the thing that you have to do and what I urge people is how do you compress time and how you compress time is through speed, right? And you can master that craft. It becomes the differentiator because everything else is equal. People are probably equal from a skill set, you know, to to some degree. Technology is all those other things are capital funding resource. But one thing you can change the playing field with is speed. 
I love it, man. I'm glad that you got this book out there because I think those two principles are huge, especially for businesses, like you said, that are kind of in that small to mid-sized category uh, that are looking for the idea of scaling, being able to focus their attention on revenue generating activities, being able to do those things with some urgency and some speed. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Well, so tell us about, uh, you've got another book coming up, right? I do. It's, I actually have a uh... Um, like 500 copies here um, in my office, but it is uh, going to be available to buy. You can pre-order it on Amazon right now, but I think it actually gets released um, like the middle of February. And what's this one on? Uh, Mastering Recurring Revenue. So it's a uh, it's kind of a sub book of Scale with Speed. So within Scale with Speed, I talk about the importance of recurring revenue but it's such a important topic that I felt it, it lended itself to have its own um, own book. And it's, it's a quick read. I mean, it's like, it's a, you know, hundred, hundred pages or something. It's not a, you know, really lengthy book because the concept is pretty easy, but it's really any business to have enterprise value and to be able to scale um, specifically, if you ever want to sell that business, um, you need some sort of recurring revenue, right? And recurring revenue is revenue that a buyer or you know yourself can look at, you know, with ninety plus percent um, accuracy and predictability. You know, you can forecast out months in advance what your revenue will be. And I learned this again the hard way. My first business was project based, and all my businesses after were not project based. I mean, they had some project, but it w- it had recurring revenue elements to them. And by having those elements, I was able to grow companies. Um, I was able to scale quickly and I was able to sell them for a lot of money. And so I said, you know what? Recurring revenues are a really good thing. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, so the whole book's on, you know, what is recurring revenue? Why you need recurring revenue? How to create recurring revenue? Different types of recurring revenue. Um, if you're in a business and you just don't believe it's possible um, to have recurring revenue, I, I talk you through that it is. You know, I believe you could almost, you know, you could, we could do it here. We could test me. You know, I, I feel 98% of every business right now, I can come up with a strategy of how they could have recurring revenue. Well, and what you're talking to is, is the amount of leverage you actually get by having recurring revenue. So for people who, you know, may not know the nuances of business and, you know, putting a business up for market. One of the components of a lot of businesses that they're trying to sell on is something that's called goodwill, which is basically this unmeasurable factor that says my business is worth X amount of dollars because we have a reputation or because we have a brand or because we have something that's actually really pretty much impossible to measure. And so when you're basing the value of your business on goodwill, you're trying to convince people who are buying it that you actually have something of value, which you can't show any numbers to represent. Now, people lean that way because there are some brands out there that obviously have that, but you're not that brand. You're not Coca-Cola. You're not Pepsi. You know, you're not a brand that has that goodwill. And so by creating re- re- uh, recurring revenue, what you're actually doing is you're bringing tangible numbers to the business that people can't argue with. So if you want to actually sell your business for money, you have to have something like that rather than basing it on goodwill, which somebody coming in from the outside is going to say, your business isn't worth nearly what you think it is. Yeah. And it's key. I mean, you build, if you want to build a real business and, and this isn't, you know, talking down to any, anybody, because listen, there's a lot of people that are making a lot of money that are just solopreneurs or they're small, you know, kind of project based shops. This isn't a knock at those people at all because you're making a great living. But I'm talking about if you want to put, you know, millions of dollars in your banking account or hundreds of millions of dollars in your bank account, you have to have this component. It's, it's, it's a, it's not a maybe it's a must. Absolutely. You know, one of the, uh, an industry, it's not even an industry, but it's a kind of a segment of folks that I've seen this happen a lot with where they don't have recurring revenue. They're ready to exit their business because they're about to retire and they think they're going to sell it for much more is the practitioner based business. So the Mm -hmm. dentists, the veterinarians, uh, you know, the general practitioners, they have built a business over 30 years. They think that they're going to sell their business for two and a half, three, four, five million dollars. 
but it's all based on goodwill, not recurring revenue. They get to actually selling it and they find that nobody's going to value their business at that. And yet they've based their retirement on these figures. And I've seen that happen literally dozens of times where I've worked with practitioners who are trying to sell their business. Yeah. And we have, to, we have to figure out how to actually build something over a short period of time that's going to have the value that they think their business has when it doesn't in reality. But I, I, So I love that. I love so the power. So let me give you a great uh, real story with me that, that, that holds true and, and how important it is for the audience to, to understand this concept. You need to make whatever business you're building, go back to this, this practitioner like a dentist. The reason the dentist, even if they have recurring revenue to, to, to some extent or some predictability because they've got set appointments or whatever, the reason they're not able to sell it at the multiple that they want is because they're tied to that business. Meaning if Judge the Dentist got hit by a truck, that revenue is at risk because I've built relationships with those clients and they want Judge the Dentist, right? You're tracking me, right, Kyle? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I learned this. So my, my first business I exited, I, I had a business partner and he's probably 20 years my senior. And he is brilliant because he recognized you know, two or, two or three years into this business that he needed to continue to make sure I was the guy. So he started weaning himself out of the business. He was taking three or four month vacations. I had the full responsibility, all those different things. We, we go to market, we have seven or eight offers <clears throat> to buy our business. We lock into one um, under a letter of intent. And through the entire diligence and sale process, my business partner took a sabbatical and went to Italy for four months. <laughs> but he did, it, he did it intentional because he was ready to retire and he wanted to ensure to the buyer, right, without coming out and saying it, that he had been removed from the business for, you know, a couple years and that the business was so solid without him that he didn't even, he, he was in Italy for four months. So the, the point of that story is, if you are in a situation like that and you are the individual, you are the dentist or whatever, what is the succession plan and how are you going to be able to build your business? So if you were to be removed tomorrow, if you died, if you got hit by a bus, that that business would continue to thrive without you. That's the thing you got to fix. Absolutely. Yep. I love it. And it's huge. It's a it's a big shift for some businesses to to shift that way of thinking and to make that realization that so much of the business is built on one person and one person's brand, reputation, you know, their ability to generate revenue versus having actual systems and processes in place. And I think, you know, you hear a lot of people out there talk about building systems and processes. And I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the early stage, realize what they're really saying. And what they're really saying is what you're saying. What they're really saying is, look, you've got to build systems and processes that can sustain regardless of who is in the business. Uh, that, 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 that's the actual foundation of the business is that it's sustainable without a specific individual because the right systems and processes are in place. Amen. All right, Judge, you're putting out tons of good stuff. Obviously, we talked about Scale with Speed. We talked about mastering recurring revenue. So I'd encourage listeners to go pick up Scale with Speed, pre-order mastering recurring revenue. Um, I know you're also doing da uh, Dominate Mastermind, which is an opportunity uh, there in Dallas, right? It is. It is. Um, so I don't, you know, we may get this out just in time for our listeners to pick up on the one that's coming up, but, I, uh, but you're going to be rerunning this mastermind, right? I am. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's um, We only have one spot left. And what I'm trying to do is make it a, a much more intimate event. So I think um, we're, I think we said only 12 can come and, and that's moved up to like 16 to 18 maybe because of, of demand, which is awesome. But it's a day and a half. Um, myself and um, an associate of mine named Tim Hissom, who's kind of an operational you know guru who runs... Um, a couple of multi-million dollar companies is doing this with me. And we're really helping that. We're taking really a lot of the principles we've been talking about on this podcast. And we're walking through these entrepreneurs and business owners or people that are even running, you know, sales organizations, how to operate with speed, how to do recurring revenue, how to, you know, become more niche, how to be, you know, better packaged in position. And the really the whole thematic of this is, 
stop competing and start dominating. And here are all the things that we're going to help you implement that aren't just going to be hype and motivation, but actual tangible things you're going to walk away with that that next day in the office, you can start implementing to start dominating versus competing. That's perfect. And, and, if you guys haven't picked this up yet, Judge and I share a very similar sentiment that it's all about practice. It's all about being practical, about getting things in people's hands where that they can actually act on. So I would just reemphasize, reinforce what Judge said about it not being, you know, motivation and fluff. I'm sure there's some of that in there, but yeah, really being about how do I take this and do something with it tomorrow or today? Yeah, there's this whole movement. I don't know if you uh, <clears throat> have been following it. I mean, you know, everybody's an expert now. I mean, you look at social and it's flooded and there's everybody's videos and everybody's in front of Lambos and all these crazy things. You know, I would encourage people listening, do your research on whoever you're trying to work with and make sure that they're real. And then furthermore, make sure that you're going to get something tangible. Like what Kyle and I'll uh, provide is real. Like it's not going to be just something that we've made up. Like we've done it. Like I've sold multiple companies. I've done these things. I know what I'm doing and Kyle does as well. And it's tough right now in this environment because there's all these fake gurus out there that are just selling hype. Um, and it's something as you're looking for mentorship or you're looking for somebody to really help, it, it becomes difficult to, to navigate who's real and who's not right now. I'm glad you called that out. And I'm glad you just speak to the reality of, look, folks, go you know, do your research. Make sure you find somebody that has the right stuff to back them up and that, to your point, is really going to give you something tangible. The last thing you need is another piece of motivation that's just going to die after a couple of days. What you need are some real tangible practical tools that you can use on an ongoing basis. Yep. Well, Judge, man, I, uh, I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you would add as we wrap up? Uh, no, I appreciate it. It was awesome. If uh, you guys aren't following me, uh, judgegram.com. All my social handles are at Judge Graham. Um, besides Facebook, it's at Judge Graham Business. Um, I'm always dropping fire content, videos, different things. Please follow me, like it, share it. Um, that's it, man. I love being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. And I would just re reiterate what Judge just said. He's putting out some awesome videos that uh, are truly inspiring and always, you know, Whiteboard Wednesday, trying to get real content to you that that delivers. Uh, so judgegram.com. You can also check out the mastermind at dominatemastermind.com or dominatemm.com for all the things that Judge is doing. Uh, Judge, thanks again, man. And folks, this has been an episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction. Look forward to catching you on the next one.